Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. On this program, on a weekly basis, we discuss complex issues and events that are shaping our world today. We do this from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Objectivism is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. If you want to learn more about us and about our philosophy, you should start by checking out newideal.einrand.org. That's the journal uh, website. So today's topic, uh, which we announced uh, a few days ago, is the assault on expertise. This is a topic that's been relevant, especially since the beginning of the recent pandemic, though I think it precedes that. What we've seen is a really high level of public skepticism about the role of scientific expertise. And it's a problematic fact because there's really no way that we can get out of the pandemic without the help of experts, without the new scientific knowledge and uh, new discoveries that they bring to the table, whether it's vaccines or therapeutics or treatments or what have you. Uh, and yet this growing backlash uh, is skeptical about the importance of scientific expertise. And that is going to cause problems one way or the other. So today we want to talk about how can we know when we should trust experts, when we shouldn't, uh, what accounts for the declining trust in experts today, and how much of any of that distrust is warranted. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at ARI. And joining me momentarily is going to be uh, senior fellow at ARI, Elon Giorno. Hey, Ben. Hi, Elon. So this is a really uh, important topic to address, I think. And you wanted to kick us off by, I think, asking a, one of the bigger questions that all of this relates to. Yeah, I think the, the place to start is to recognize that there's a, there's a sort of universal, essentially philosophic issue here about how to think about expertise. And it's a, it's a question about knowledge and how we gain it. And it's true before the pandemic, it's, gonna, it's true during the pandemic, it's always going to be with us as, a, as an issue to deal with. And so I want to just sort of set us off with how can we know when we should trust someone who's an expert and when we shouldn't and what is an expert as well? So why don't we kick it off there? Yeah, so objectivism is a systematic philosophy. It includes uh, a view of knowledge, what we call epistemology. And uh, part of the way, part of the reason objectivism has its name, objectivism, is from the idea that knowledge is objective and there's objective rules for getting it. Now, objectivism is also famously individualistic. The idea is knowledge has to be gotten independently. Uh, and a result of that is that, yeah, you, you have to get knowledge on your own. You can't get it through osmosis. All knowledge takes your own work. And so there's definitely a logical fallacy involved in appealing to uh, someone else's authority just because it's somebody important. Uh, there's, a, there's a logical fallacy of appealing to irrelevant authorities. But it's also important to understand that the, the fallacy there is appealing to irrelevant authorities. There's no fallacy involved in appealing to authorities who are relevant, who are reliable, who know what they're talking about. And just as knowledge takes work, uh, hard knowledge takes really hard work. Not all knowledge is knowledge that comes just from opening your eyes and looking at the world and getting what you can grasp directly from it. Uh, some knowledge requires uh, very specialized, 
systematic acquisition of data, doing experiments, drawing inferences from uh, these experiments. Uh, I mean, the most obvious example that we could give in the present context is, uh, look, viruses are not things that you can see with your eyes. They are, they are invisible to the naked eye. You need microscopes and all kinds of other sophisticated scientific apparatus and advanced scientific theories to discover that they even exist in the first place, to be able to identify which virus is responsible for which conditions, and obviously in order to find cures and treatments and vaccines for these viruses. And the use of these tools, the use of the skills, uh, and the development of the knowledge that this takes is something that not just everybody can do. And as a consequence, uh, any of us who don't have specialized medical knowledge in this case uh, has to rely on the knowledge of other people who have acquired the skills. Uh, if you've not done the skills, if you've not done the learning and the training to develop this kind of, these kind of skills of acquiring knowledge, then you have to find somebody else who has done the training. It's, it's a division of labor, just like uh, in the economy, except it's a cognitive division of labor. You have to find people who specialize in the skill of acquiring a certain kind of knowledge and trade with them to get the knowledge that you yourself are not in a position uh, to acquire. And what's important about this perspective, especially from the perspective of an individualistic philosophy that says that you have to be the one to earn your own knowledge, is that relying on another person who's an expert is not a form of irrational faith in others if you do the work to figure out that the person is the expert. If you know that somebody has the skills that you don't have, if you have evidence that they know what they're talking about, uh, even if you can't figure it out on their own, on your own, uh, if you can't figure out the, the, the first level claim on your, on your own, you can still figure out enough about the other person to know that they know what they're talking about. And that gives you rational reasons to trust them. Now, it usually doesn't give you reasons to think the person's certainly correct, but it does give you at least some reason to think that what they're saying is possibly true, maybe even probably true. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in and, and just add to what you're saying, because I think that it's when people deal with experts, once you've established that you this is a person with with the training and the knowledge and the, and the expertise that you think is necessary, it's not the case that then you just shut off your mind. It's like, well, yeah, whatever they say goes, and then it's sort of an act of faith. Anything they tell you, you just accept blindly. It's still the case that, and I think this is a mark of an actual expert, that they explain their views to you as a layperson in a way that you can understand. So they have sufficient knowledge that they can um, break it down and present it to you so that you have reason to believe that what they're suggesting is the path forward. It, there's basis for it. There's evidence that if you were in a position that they are, you would have this knowledge and that you could build that. So anyone could gain that knowledge too. It's not like now they're, they're oracles and you have to go to them and just listen to them and, and any doubts that come to your mind are irrelevant because they'll, they experts. so they're not authority figures in a kind of religious sense or like, uh, you know, just giving pronouncements. And I think one thing to be really, uh, one thing that should raise a red flag for you is if, if you're dealing with someone who says, hey, I'm an expert and they don't give you reasons for what they're arguing you should do or, or should be done, uh, that's that's a warning either i mean it could be something benign like they're not good at communicating which is its own kind of thing but it, often it's 
they don't want to give reasons. And that's a bad thing. That's someone who's not really trading on their knowledge. They're trading on their authority and they want obedience. And that's not a good thing. Yeah, there's definitely a difference between uh, an expert who uh, you have reason to trust and uh, a, an alleged expert who just uh, uh, goes through the motions uh, of uh, of making it look like you can trust him. And, and the, the factor that you mentioned is, I think, just one of several factors that can work into reasons we have to trust other people, uh, ways that we have of independently looking for evidence of another person's reliability. Um, hard knowledge takes hard work, but the people who are able to do the hard work can show their work. And there's lots of ways you can look for the work that they show. Uh, and this is obvious to a lot of people in certain cases. So for instance, you know that uh, not just anybody can fix a car, that you need to go to somebody who has experience and has expertise fixing cars. And so you'll go on to Yelp and you'll see, well, you know, which of these car, do, uh, car mechanics has the best uh, set of testimony, uh, set, best set of uh, you know, commenters speaking on their behalf. You know people who've had their car fixed, it's worked for a long time. That's something you can check out even if you don't know how to fix cars yourself. Uh, but then, by the same token, uh, if you're talking about somebody who you want to not fix your car, but to fix the human body, which is an even more complex machine than a car, and also for which there's a lot less margin for error, because you can, you know, if, if your car gets junked, you can get another one, uh, not the case with your body. And so you want to have an even higher degree of trust in a medical expert. And so you need to search out for even more forms of knowledge than just Yelp reviews to find out that somebody that you, that you have reason to trust them. And so, you know, start maybe by looking to see if they have a medical degree and where it's from. But that's far from everything that you want. It's, it's necessary. Credentials are necessary, but not a sufficient condition. Uh, which, hospital do, which hospital do they work at? How well is it managed? Um, you mentioned, are they able to explain their views to you or do they just expect you to believe them because they're the doctor? Uh, do you know people who've been treated by them before? What was their track record? Does the explanation that they give to you, if they give you one, does it fit all the other knowledge that you have acquired about your own health and what smatterings of medical knowledge you yourself have if you do your own research? Uh, that's something that's possible. Uh, and obviously, you want to make sure there are no red flags. Are there, uh, no, are there any, you know, signs of bias or dishonesty on the part of the uh, medical expert who's giving you his or her testimony? And we'll talk a little bit more later about what uh, kinds of bias you might want to look for. But again, I want to emphasize, even when you rely on experts, whether they're doctors or anybody else, it's rarely that it's rare if ever that you're going to invest them with complete certainty because of this trust. It's going to be some level of probability. And that's especially because of the fact that, you know, doctors and experts of all kinds disagree with each other. Uh, and, you know, when lots of them agree and when there are no red flags, uh, then I think that that consensus, it increases the probability of accepting what they're saying. It doesn't, it still doesn't make it certain, especially since we know that in the past there've been consensuses of experts who've agreed on things and they've still been wrong. But if you're just going on the basis of probability, I think it does increase the probability. And you should also be aware when uh, non-experts claim that the experts agree about everything 
Um, I can give more examples of cases where that's happened, where it's, you know, the, the non-experts just don't understand the, the question involved and they don't understand what it is the experts are agreeing about and what they don't agree about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's useful for, I think for different kinds of disciplines, including, so you, we, the, a lot of the examples have been in medicine, and I think that's right because of where the context we're in the pandemic. I think it's relevant to think about when you're talking to someone and you're, you, what you're trying to get is the benefit of their expertise, either as guidance or just as knowledge. Uh, it's, it's important that they be able to tell you the, what it is that people disagree with them on. So what would another doctor say, or is their view part of the, uh, are they uh, sort of critics of the conventional view or the established view, and they should be open with you about that. And that doesn't mean it's a, it, they're wrong. It doesn't mean they're right. It just means that there's a debate. And the more you sort of dig into any discipline, the more you realize that so much that you think is just settled is, is just under this debates about how to understand things. And it's important that the person that you're evaluating as an expert be able to tell you one, the limits of their knowledge and the kind of things that people disagree with them on and not be threatened by that. So it should, they should be confident. Yeah, this is my view. And yeah, you'll talk to another doctor and he'll say X and not Y, uh, but I still think I'm right because the evidence is on my side. And you, so you want to be in a position to be able to say, either I could gain the knowledge over many, many years and come to a view of what this issue is, or you can ask another uh, someone who's a trusted expert and they can help you navigate it. But it, it would be very suspicious if you heard, oh yeah, this is all settled. You know, there are no questions about this or there's no, you know, all the studies are settled. And you want to, I mean, things are, like fast moving disciplines, there's development. And if the expert isn't really clued into that, that should be a sign that, well, how much are they actually investing in cultivating their knowledge? Because knowledge isn't static. And if your expert is telling you, yeah, this is how we've been doing it since 1962, and he's about to pull your tooth out with parapl you know, something <laughs> really crazy, dentistry is advanced. And if they're not on top of that, then that should be a question like, have their skills atrophied? Has their knowledge kind of stagnated and that's that person is sort of discrediting themselves by failing to keep their knowledge current so the, look for those kinds of signals um and and sort of the, the idea that yeah i learned everything i needed to know 20 years ago when i was in school and that's it and now i'm an expert that that's just not real that's not how knowledge works yeah so uh, we've talked about some of the things that you should you should be looking for in an expert that you want to invest some rational trust in. Um, there's lots of ways in which that trust, uh, which, in which alleged experts try to demand unearned trust, or in which people who aren't experts at all themselves will say, you should trust this person uh, without knowing, without giving reasons for why you should trust them. Um, one, one issue here is that experts are usually, well, almost always only experts in a specific subject. Uh, now, it's not the case that we're dividing up the world here into the experts and the, and the laymen, and like this is a class system. It's not. It's, it's lots of people, most people, are experts on something, but nobody is an expert on everything. And so when you're assessing whether you should trust somebody's claim on a certain subject matter, it's important to understand, well, do they have expertise on that subject matter? So pretty obviously somebody who knows how to fix a car merely by that fact doesn't know how to fix a human body. And I should say it works the other way too. The fact that somebody is a doctor 
who knows how to fix a human body doesn't mean that they know how to fix a car. Uh, and you can drill down into more specific fields even within something like medicine. So a, a cardiothoracic surgeon like uh, Dr. Oz, who's a famous um, TV personality, is because of that training of his an expert on heart surgery. But that doesn't make him an expert on epidemiology or virology. Medicine has all kinds of subdisciplines. Some people will study for years just to master their subdiscipline. And merely having gone to medical school uh, doesn't make you an expert on the fact that you, you know, on some subject just because you took one class on it sometime. And it gives you more expertise than person off the street, but it doesn't make you a real expert. And there have been cases in the, in the last few months where Dr. Oz was commenting on uh, questions about the coronavirus where this was not his field. And there's probably other reasons to distrust some of the kinds of endorsements that he makes of various products that are also outside of his field. So that's, there were some red flags there. But uh, another thing that I think is important to distinguish is not just subspecializations within fields, but the broader issue of scientist, specialized scientific expertise and specialization on addressing normative philosophical questions. So the simple example you can give on this is something like, if you're a nuclear physicist, that will give you expertise on, let's say, how to build an atomic bomb, and even then it's a specific kind of nuclear physics. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily know what you're doing when you're deciding whether you should build the bomb or if you build it, how you should use it. That is a question for ethics and to some extent for political philosophy. Uh, and likewise, you zoom forward to what we're talking about today. If you're an epidemiologist or a virologist or a pandemic preparedness expert even, uh, the fact that you have not expertise on that subject doesn't even necessarily translate into the political question of what's the proper role of government in responding uh, to something like a pandemic. Uh, the fact that you think, for instance, that the virus is dangerous and needs to be dealt with somehow doesn't tell you how. And there's a lot of questions that a somebody who's addressing the political question needs to answer apart from the raw science of it. They need to look at the social and economic factors and they need to see how those all connect to basic principles of what the proper function of government is and how we should each be living our lives. So the, the takeaway here is that it's important to try to trust someone's expertise only as far as the limits of their specialization will take them and not beyond that. And then when you're going beyond that, you need to look for experts who know something about that broader question or uh, a different specialized question. And if it's then, especially if it's dealing with normative philosophical questions about how you should live your life, how government should be run, there it's especially important that you yourself get clear on your own philosophic understanding of the issue. I think one, one point that is worth making, sort of, we're, we're now sort of in the, in the realm of trying to uh, sort of pick out elements of what it is that gives people distrust of, of experts. And I think so the examples you, you touched on, like the Dr. Oz, you know, cardiothoracic surgeon, is, he's making pronouncements about uh, what to do, uh, what, what, you know, how to handle the, the pandemic. Um, 
and I think he was overstep. I think he even admitted he was overstepping his role and sort of making public policy kind of recommendations that were outside of his uh, sphere of expertise. I think it's relevant to think as well, and we've so a lot of the threads we've been following here have to do with pandemic and medicine. Uh, but it's relevant to think that different disciplines have different standards of, of knowledge and different success levels in terms of how they how capable they are in understanding the world. So. Um, when we talk about experts, that's a, it's a very important point that if you're dealing with a, um, in a, a particular kind of field where certain standards, where you can quantify things, you can measure things, you can experiment, you can get results that are at a certain kind of level of probability or even certainty, but that's not true for every field. And, and each field has its own kind of standards and, and pro, protocols and, and processes. So you, you can't hold them to the same, you shouldn't expect the same kind of results. So I think it's worth just digging into that a little bit before we kind of unpack more of the reasons people are skeptical. Because you, you should be looking for different kinds of um, recommendations and different levels of confidence. So, uh, and it should, the, the, the expert giving you their view should be sensitive to how confident they legitimately can be within their field and within the standards of that field. Yeah, I mean, so one issue is that uh, some experts within a field are just just have better training, just are have better track records than others. But then there's also the fact that some fields, as such, have a have a longer history of progress and success than others. I would say there's a difference between mature and immature fields of science, for instance. If you want an example of probably the most mature scientific field, I would, I would point to physics. Uh, it's in many ways one of the first and best developed fields. It started at the very, very beginning. Well, I mean, it started in ancient Greece, but then especially uh, picked up fuel way back in the scientific revolution. Uh, since then, there have been amazing new discoveries about the inner workings of nature. Uh, you know, very precise uh, natural laws have been discovered that allow you to predict and explain with very high degrees of certainty uh, the operations of nature. And so when you find out that a certain view is a consensus view in physics, I invest that with a lot more confidence than I would if I find out that, say, some view in psychology is a consensus view in psychology. Uh, empirical psychology is a relevant, relatively new field. It's only been around really since the end of the 19th century. Uh, and there are limitations in the field, inherent limitations in the subject that it's studying. It's studying the consciousness of other subjects. You can't directly inspect their consciousness. Often you have to rely on their own reports. Uh, and for you know, various ethical reasons, you can't do the kinds of experiments that you can do in physics where you manipulate uh, variables and things like that. And, and so the findings in, in psychology, for instance, have been relatively modest. There aren't any kind of grand unifying theories of psychological uh, uh, subject matters. And it's, it's noteworthy that in, in just uh, the last few years, there's been this big replication crisis in psychology where uh, certain researchers have looked at published studies and they've tried to replicate them and they've found that they can't replicate them, but that nobody had pointed this out before. And this turns out to be a very widespread uh, issue in psychology. 
as opposed to something like physics, for instance, where when someone comes out with a you know, strange view like cold fusion, all the physicists will rush to try to verify and replicate the experiment or try to get access to the data for the experiment. And when they can't replicate it, when they can't access the same data, it quickly evaporates as, as a plausible view. And I think there are a lot of scientific fields that are somewhere in between uh, those two examples of physics and, and psychology. And I would, here I would give something like the example of climate science. Uh, it's a relatively new field. Uh, it's only been around since, mm, I mean, depending on how you think about it, then probably the middle of the 20th century. Now it is a physical science as opposed to psychology. So it's, it's, it's studying natural phenomena, which you know, don't have a will of their own or anything like that. But it's also studying very complex systems. And in order to understand those complex systems, you have to use very complex mathematics. Uh, I, I've talked with people who know statistics, for instance, who say that the, you know, most of the people working in climate science are you know, maybe a decade behind some of the latest advancements in statistical theory, and they're only starting to catch up recently. And as a result, their predictions are getting more refined, but it's, it's not anywhere nearly as advanced, say, as theoretical physics. And so it's important to think about that when you're considering proclamations about what you know, all the climate scientists are supposed to believe. Uh, I think that you can invest some degree of certainty in what, uh, what, what climate scientists say, but not the degree that is often attributed to them, let's say, by various commenters in the media. Um, so one important thing is make sure when you're evaluating an expert that you only acknowledge that, that you hold them to uh, only the level of probability that you think their field of science warrants and not every field is equal in that way. And scientific experts can also be biased in many of the same ways that any of us can be. They can be biased by uh, their ideology by uh, political and cultural attitudes. And here it's important to remember that distinction between questions that are in the special sciences versus the normative and philosophical questions. And those are different. And often people's biases on philosophy can influence what they judge to be the actual descriptive facts. They can be biased by money. They can be biased by all kinds of psychological factors, desire for conformity, prestige, power, lust. Uh, and so these are things you have to be on the lookout for when you're assessing any expert. Though I do think that when you live in a free society, uh, the bias of one expert is usually going to be checked uh, by, by others. There's an incentive that others have to show that bias exists. And when there's free speech, I think it's likely that the truth will out. And that undercuts the possibility of I mean, it downplays at least the likelihood that there are these conspiracies uh, of, of experts to you know, all of them, you know, gather together to hide the facts. Reality is out there for anybody to test and uh, scientists will do it. Scientists will try to replicate uh, and you can do it too if you know the science. So that sort of covers one of the questions we've gotten so far about looking at biases. I think you've addressed that question um, I wanted to raise uh, an aspect, Ben, that I think so a lot of what we've said about expertise and so on uh, so far has had to do with what is it, how to evaluate it, how to know it when you see it, how to be, what, what sort of things to be 
questioning and examples of when when people who are experts in one field overstep the bounds of their knowledge and and give sort of discredit themselves in an important way by uh, making claims that they're not in a position to make as experts. I mean, you can listen to Dr. Oz as a non-expert on virology if you're interested, but you shouldn't think of what he's saying as having the same standing as someone who's actually studied that subdiscipline of medicine. But I want to talk a little more about uh, what I think are other factors that lead people, or additional factors, I think, that lead people to have a kind of maybe jaundiced view or, or even stronger just skepticism about um, uh, expertise. And so uh, there's many factors here. And I think we just want to tease apart some of them. Um, do you want to move to that or did you want to? Yeah, no, I think that's fine. I mean, part of what you were just summarizing is that we've, we've talked about ways in which the experts themselves can fail to earn your trust. And uh, part of the reason I think legitimate, the legitimate part of the reason why there's been declining trust in experts in certain sectors of the population is because the experts themselves haven't done enough to earn it or in certain ways they've betrayed trust that we've already given them. But yeah, I think you're right. That is not the only factor that there, it's not just the fault of the experts. It's, it's to uh, a significant extent also the result of certain kinds of trends in our culture that lead people to be, let me put it this way, irrationally skeptical uh, about experts, even when experts have earned our trust and they, and they haven't, they don't acknowledge the trust that they should acknowledge. And so, I mean, and I just experts, to, yeah, go ahead. I just want to say something quick about that. So we've talked about people who are like, people who overstep the bounds of their expertise or people who kind of want to posture in a certain way. Um, I, I haven't done a methodical study of this, but I don't think that's the norm. I think those are more sort of the, the standout cases where I think that the fact that we're making progress in many fields and that there's so much knowledge being generated, I think it's a, it's testament to the fact that we're, you know, we're on the shoulders of a lot of people in a lot of fields who have incredible knowledge, hard earned over many years. And that to me, that they are experts and they're doing the, and yeah, they, they don't always get things right. And that's not what we expect of them. We expect them to, to, to be objective about their goals. So I, I mean, I, I don't, I just want to put the issue in a way that I don't think the main driver is a lot of experts are sort of overstepping. I think that's one factor. Um, and it's, but I think it's how we view experts as a significant, which is sort of why we talk so much about what is an expert and how to think about them. Um, Cause I, I don't want to come across as having um, sort of a generalized negative view of experts. I don't think that's, I don't think there's basis for that because there's so many different people and so many different behaviors. Uh, so why don't we dig into sort of what it is that's going on in addition that I think is driving some yeah. of this. I mean, you're right. There's been, there's been enormous progress in science and technology, uh, even just in the last 50 years. And so part of the problem uh, among those who are non-experts, part of the reason they don't trust science is because they just don't know enough about science. There's been significant failure in our education system to educate people about the scientific method. Uh, and as a result, people have much less appreciation than they should for the work that it takes to go into acquiring specialized knowledge. To far too many people, science 
seems just like a special kind of magic. And if it's a magic power that they don't have, they will see it just as one kind of dogmatic pronouncement among many others. As opposed to if it were a method, if they, it was a method they understood that they knew that anybody could learn if they studied hard enough and worked hard enough then they wouldn't see it as this inaccessible magic force. Now, I don't actually don't think this problem is advanced, is solved any by the fact that uh, certain people in our culture, especially in politics, will say, I believe in science. That just reinforces the idea that science is, like a, is just like a religious belief system. The whole point is that it's not. The whole point is that it's a method that anybody can learn for uncovering the uh, the secrets of nature, but they have to do a lot of work to learn it. I, I, I'll just share a personal anecdote here. When I was an undergrad in college, I was a physics major. Uh, I ended up turning it into minor because it's, it's, it, I wasn't good enough at it. But I, I really value the experience that I had learning physics and finding out uh, what I was and wasn't good at because it, it did give me a sense of how much work goes into understanding these advanced uh, physical claims about the universe. And I always remember uh, I was taking an electronics class and the assignment for that week was to build a circuit that worked as a really simple calculator. And I spent all day just making the circuit add one plus one to get two. <laughs> and that was just one plus one equals two. I couldn't make it do any more advanced operations. And yet we know now that our entire information infrastructure is built on circuits like that, but multiplied a thousand fold for the sake of doing much more complicated calculations and creating technology that's built on top of that, that, that uses it. And there are people who understand how all these pieces fit together. And I realized I was not one of them. I knew just enough to know how much more there was to know. And that's all, that was a very formative experience for me in, in understanding uh, just how much work goes into scientific knowledge. It's, it's the kind of experience that too many people don't have because of the failures of our education system. Yeah, I, I would just I totally say I, I had similar experiences, in, not only in college, but in, since, since college. I would say, I, I just want to expand on the point. I think it's true people don't have an appreciation for what goes into scientific knowledge and, and so even the uh, uh, kind of electronics and engineering kind of things you're describing. I think it's, it, it's probably a more fundamental kind of issue where they're, they're just people who are graduating school without a lot of knowledge, period, or they don't have a, an appreciation for what it means to master something. And so they know a little bit about some subjects and they, they did enough to pass tests and so on, but they don't have this sort of internal sense of, okay, now I actually know what this is and what it looks like to go from zero to understanding. And, and I think that without that, that, that sort of, sort of first-handed sense of mastery, however narrow a sphere it is, even if it's just, you know, I can tell you every time when to use a comma or not to use a comma or how to do this kind of calculation versus not to do this calculation and really get it. I think without that, uh, it's difficult to project what it looks like to know a big, sort of a much larger scope of knowledge. And I think the, the other element is this, not just an absence of 
uh, so people not appreciating science and not, not gaining knowledge and learning. I think there are also pressures and, and views that are everywhere in education that push against it, which is there's a lot of, uh, you, you know, students are, you, you've dealt with many more students than I have when you were a professor, but I've definitely seen this to some extent. Uh, students getting to college and having the view that, well, they're feeling about some subject, like let's say something super controversial, uh, like abortion. Like I feel abortion is right and I feel abortion is wrong. And that's their argument. And that's not an argument. That's, that's nothing like knowledge. There's nothing like getting to a view. And yet they've had 12 years in, of schooling where there isn't a sense of well, you need evidence, you need an argument. That, or if there was, it didn't sink in. And so they get to the point where uh, simply asserting something in their view is that's sufficient. And so if, you, if you're starting from that handicap, which I think is a fundamental handicap as a human being, then when you encounter someone who says, no, I actually know what is going on with this virus, I can tell you how, what the current state of the knowledge is, there's sort of an unreality of what, what is the basis for that? There's, how does that person have anything more than, well, I feel that it's working a different way. I feel like I don't need anything on my face when I go out in public. And, and you know, there's, that takes science to figure out. So I think there's kind of a fundamental breakdown in, in what it looks like to have knowledge. And I think that one of the consequences of that is the idea of expertise is just so abstract and removed from what people have as sort of a small scale example of that in their own lives, that it's, it's, it's such a challenge. It's this vague, cloudy kind of thing where it's hard for them to conceptualize what it would look like to know some deep, abstract, non-obvious kind of thing in a, in a, at the level of an expert. And I think that's, there's no way around blaming the education system for that. Yeah, the, the problems with the education system then get amplified and multiplied by a number of other cultural and political trends. So we, we have the internet and it's easy to find opinions on every subject from every possible perspective. And so somebody who doesn't know what it actually looks like to acquire advanced knowledge can easily find a website somewhere that disputes any scientific finding that you want. And they, can, they feel like they're learning something from this website. But since they don't know the standards, uh, the, the feeling doesn't really amount to much. And that's even made worse by the fact that science is becoming politicized because of the sort of tribalistic political culture we live in, where uh, one political partisan uh, camp will, will latch on to a certain kind of scientific conclusion or to the rejection of a certain scientific conclusion as somehow tied up with their political identity. I mean, the best example that you can give of this right now, uh, something that I've written about already, and I'll share the link later, uh, is, the, is the way people assume if you think that the coronavirus is a real thing, if you think that it is actually dangerous, if you think that we should be concerned about it, that we need to find a cure for it, and we need to find treatments and vaccines for it, then you must also think politically that government has the right to shut everything down until we find that cure. And that's a deadly uh, package deal. Uh, it, first of all, it ignores the distinction between the specialized scientific uh, findings on the one hand and philosophic normative issues on the other. Uh, and it neglects 
the possibility that you could care about the science, you could think there's a real problem, but still realize that how government should deal with it is a separate question. Of course, uh, you have the same problem on the opposite side. You have the people who, uh, because they uh, have the, uh, because they realize there's something problematic with uh, draconian government response, they assume the science must be bogus. And again, that's a package deal that just has to be broken up. But, but because these two movements involve their own package and everybody feels the need, but you've got to join a movement, they feel when they sign up for a certain scientific attitude, they're also signing up for a certain political attitude and vice versa. And there's so much tribalistic partisan material on the internet then that is packaged in that way that people who don't understand how science works or the difference between science and philosophy will then just find the websites, swallow those packages whole and join a tribe without thinking carefully about what it is they're swallowing when they buy those packages. Uh, we have some questions, but I think there's at least one more point that we should get on the table just to, and we'll try to keep it a little briefer. And this is, uh, I wanted to raise this and it's, uh, Tell me your perspective, which is there's a, there's a view in sort of the philosophic position called egalitarianism. It's, it's a sort of kind of an intellectual movement. It doesn't mean the pursuit of equality in politics or, or in, in other contexts. It, it's a view about leveling. And there's two ways you can level, basically. You can either raise everybody up or you can level everyone down. But you and this applies in the context of knowledge and, and the issue of expertise because there's a kind of, a, I think there is now one of the currents in our culture is this a view of egalitarianism as applied to expertise. So who are you to tell me anything? I, I can figure this out. I, I don't need you. And it's, it's a, you know, simultaneously a devaluing of knowledge and a, an overvaluing of whatever it is people think they're bringing to this. Uh, and the, the reality is you can't bring everyone up to the level of Isaac Newton or, 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 um, or, or Einstein. What you can do is level down Newton to whoever it is that's got his trigger finger on Google and trying to come up with theories off the fly and sort of half reading things. And, and so I think there's, there's this real phenomenon where, uh, and I think it's, it's pernicious because it's, it's devaluing an actual value, something that's really important in our society um, in the name of, well, why can't, you know, why can't my view have the same standing as, uh, you know, pick your favorite expert. And, and it's just, it, there, it sort of glosses over really important differences in, in achievements, which is to, to become an expert who, who's a, you know, earn their knowledge. It's that's a big achievement that takes years and effort, and you can't short. You can't gain that unearned. You can't just grab it. And I think that's part of what's happening with this egalitarian impulse that we see a lot of people doing. And it's like, and I think part of it isn't just to push their view. It's to cut down the people that they feel either threatened by or that they don't like the answers they hear. Um, so I'm just curious if you're seeing that kind of thing and what your reaction to that has been. Yeah, sure. I mean, you mentioned that the uh, egalitarianism was not simply a view about uh, equal outcomes in politics, though. I mean, that is one example of egalitarianism. And it's useful to think about that example and compare it to the other examples, because I think there are a lot of people, for instance, who would be critical of 
the the socialist version of political egalitarianism, which says that the workers should take over the factories and kick out the capitalists and they should then run the factories. And they're critical of that for good reason because running a factory is uh, an achievement. It requires specialized knowledge and it would be foolish uh, or just plain evasive to think that that uh, a collective uh, cooperative of workers could somehow manage to engage in the same kind of intellectual feats that uh, are required by production. Okay, but if that's foolish, if you understand the problem with socialism in, from that perspective, then egalitarianism about medical knowledge, about climate science knowledge, name, you name it, is even more foolish because the scientific conclusions that are involved in those fields are even more sophisticated in lots of ways than the kinds of expertise that it takes to, to run a factory. Sometimes it's just different expertise, but uh, it's, it amounts to the same kind of problem. And uh, I'm just getting, I wonder if people can check to see if they're hearing us on Facebook uh, and YouTube because I'm getting some indications there's a problem with this stream going through. Let me know if, if you can, anyone out there who's, whether there's a problem. Uh, looks like we're both, we're still connected through Zoom. So the question's about social media channels. I unfortunately don't have the expertise that it takes to fix some of these things. Um, but the, yeah, so there is an attitude out there and it's interesting that it's on sort of in the opposite political camp uh, of, of socialism. You see it more on the conservative, uh, allegedly right-wing side of uh, politics that sees scientific experts as these elites who are engaging in some kind of conspiracy to control our lives. And as I see it, this is not much different from the Marxist view that there's a conspiracy of capitalists that's out to do the same. And so when you hear that kind of attitude coming from the president or from other politicians, you have to be really critical of it, uh, especially because of the fact that it, it ignores and tries to evade real values uh, that are associated with the acquisition of knowledge which knowledge we really need right now more than anything else if we want to get through this pandemic. Why don't we see if uh, there are any questions we can take in the time remaining. We, we, uh, we don't have that long, but there, there's quite a queue here. Yeah, we've got about 13 minutes. Um, so someone asked, uh, some people seem to want certainty without going through a process of study, errors, correction, and learning in discussions they don't like to listen. Why is that? And is there a way to reach them? I think there are too many of them to just avoid them completely. Well, I agree that there are people who fit this description. Uh, I, there are, I think, some limited things that you can do to try to reach them, but there's only, it's only very limited because the fact is that the, whether you want to listen, whether you want to try to look at the facts, whether you want to try to appreciate, for instance, 
the sophisticated methodology that sometimes goes into understanding certain facts, that's a choice. That's what people's free will consists in fundamentally, at least according to Ayn Rand. He thought that our free will was the choice to think or not to think. And some people just don't make that choice. Uh, and worse than that, they'll come up with rationalizations that make it seem to them like it's a good thing to not make that choice. Like it's a, and I mean, conspiracy theories are an example of this, where uh, you, you, even if the consensus of experts is pointing to a certain conclusion, and even if there are, is no real evidence that there's bias that's influencing this consensus, and especially when there's no evidence of a conspiracy, they will say, no, actually the, the experts are conspiring to cover up the facts. They're trying to lie to us. They're trying to censor uh, the truth from us. And it's, it's easy to come up with this kind of conspiracist viewpoint, but you know, if you're willing to, to, to make things up if you're, and if you're not looking at the facts, as to what you can do in better cases where people are more honest and more willing to learn, well, there I think you just have to try to ask them for their reasons. Why do they have this view? Why do they think that the experts are biased on this subject? Can they give evidence for thinking that they're biased? Uh, can they give evidence for their own position? So if, if a person thinks that there's a magical cure for uh, a virus, for instance, that doesn't require, and, you know, and as a result, we don't need a vaccine. What's, what's the evidence for that claim? It's not enough to say, well, I found a website where somebody says they've found this cure. What evidence does that person actually give on the website? Uh, maybe they don't have a published scientific peer-reviewed paper. Have they documented in some form the data for their conclusion? If not, an honest person should look at that fact and realize I haven't studied this carefully myself. I'm only trusting this other person say so. If they themselves can't explain it with evidence, why am I listening to them? So there are a couple of questions that I'm going to put together and they have to do with um, politicization of science and particularly climate science. One is about particularly climate science, the other one's politicization with that as an example. I just want to bring them together. Uh, and I, I want to address this because it, it, it goes to one of the issues we talked about where, you, you know, we, there is this phenomenon of treating scientists, there's two issues here, I think. One is treating scientists as oracles. And if, if you like what they say, then you treat it uncritically and it's, you, you rest on the fact that, you know, uh, a consensus of scientists have said this or that about climate science. And that's what we often hear. It's like, it's a settled subject. And there, there are all kinds of interesting things about what it means for there to be a consensus among scientists. Is, is that really the standard that we should go by? Or should it be the evidence is such that if you look at it, you would reach this conclusion. And, and this, the consensus is a secondary or, or not, it's not a decisive factor. It's just that happens to be the case. Um, whereas I think what we often hear is, is the consensus is primary. And if, if you're not part of the consensus, you're, you're a fringe scientist, you're, how could you not believe this? And it, it's important to get what is the primary and how is this being presented? So that's one, at one point I, I wanna raise about this. But the, the politicization and particularly of climate science, and it's not 
a field I'm an expert in, but I, I have read enough to, to make the following points that I think are uh, relevant. So this is not a point about the science. This is the point about the politicization of it. And one reason I think there is a kind of hurting toward a certain view on climate science, particularly the views that lead directly to policy descriptions, uh, prescriptions, is that I think it, 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 I don't think they're sitting around in a dark room with smoke filling the air, sort of conspiring in one way or another. I don't think it's a, that is what accounts for it. I think it's more an alignment of the kind of political and moral values that are often unad, unadmitted or just taken for granted, and that filter into people's thinking, and they don't they're not recognizing it. And that's part of what happens when uh, a field. So we talked about how an individual expert can be um, influenced by their biases or their or uh, sort of making claims about sort of moral, political, normative claims uh, that go beyond what their expertise is. And I think what, part of what's happening in some fields, and I think climate science is an example of this, is there's an alignment that we the right thing to do in the face of this is to find a solution that involves sacrifice involves giving something up. And that's sort of most people's default view of what morality involves. And that I think feeds into, because, because what you could get is you could agree that there's a real problem. I think there are problems going on and in, 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 um, that have to be addressed. And there's scientific facts where you have to understand and so on. But it's not obvious what the solutions are. And there could be solutions that don't require sacrifice, that would require better development or progress and so on. But why is it that certain conclusions are bubbling to the surface with such force and such um, a number of people behind them? And I don't think it's like a co coordinate. I don't maybe there is coordination. I don't think it's primarily coordination. I think it's an alignment of basic moral political premises, which are just treated as given. They're treated as these are pack, like facts of nature. How could you not? How could you not agree that this this is what morality looks like, and what politics looks like? And to me, that's a big part of the explanation for why you get a field where there is such politicization and it's almost invisible to the people involved in it because it's like, well, yeah, we, we all know what the solutions are, you know? So I think it's important. So this is another illustration. I think if you step back that um, philosophy is, is everywhere and it's crucial and, and, and part of understanding expertise and sorting out what to hear and, and what to take, uh, how to, um, what to trust from an expert. It's, you have to separate out the claims that are, um, and so the assumptions that are the philosophies bringing in, because it, it's always there. Yeah, I'll say a few things about that same issue. Uh, one of the reasons that I emphasized that it's important to look at the level, at the degree of maturity of a field is related to this. A field like physics, which has been around since the 16th, 17th century, is a field that was founded and that came up in the world in an era uh, when there, there was no way for, no obvious way, uh, we'll leave aside the issue of geocentrism in the church, for politics to influence the theories. Uh, but when you look at something like climate science, which only gets going in the middle of the 20th century, around the same time as the environmental philosophy movement is, is, is being founded, well, there's a much greater likelihood that the philosophic preconceptions from environmentalism are going to get worked into the culture of that science. That doesn't mean that it's part of the science itself, but the people who are involved in that field are going to be culturally more influenced by 
these ideas. Uh, and especially when you add to the mix the fact that so much of the science at this point in the century is then funded by government funding. Uh, and government has its, a whole set of biases built into it. Uh, and power lust is also a factor, then you're especially going to get a field that is more prone to bias than others. But even still, I would say this is why it's important to be able to distinguish uh, scientific data from scientific inference from policy implications of those scientific conclusions. Uh, I mean, I think the policy implications that people draw from climate science are the most subject to bias because there you're working with a person's explicit views about what government should do and, uh, and uh, you know, whether the profit motive is something that can be trusted and whether business people are evil and things like that. So when I hear people drawing policy conclusions, any kind of policy conclusions, one way or the other, uh, from one view or another of climate science. I'm, I'm very skeptical unless I, I, I see the reasoning for that political view drawn out quite explicitly. I'm less skeptical when it comes to just the scientific interpretation of the data, like what it means for whether this climate is getting warmer or cooler. I've a lot, I, I have even more confidence if you're just talking about the data. And so the idea, you know, I think part of the reason why people say there's a consensus of climate scientists that climate change is happening is because when you, when you put it in such simple terms, climate change is happening. Well, there it's very easy to confirm that that's true. It's easy to find, just look at the data and see, yeah, the temperatures have changed since however many years ago. And it's easier for people to check that data. It's easier to replicate the data. Now, what the data means is a more complicated thing. Uh, but I mean, usually the statistics out there about how a large percentage, 95% or whatever of climate scientists agree is because it's just about, do they agree that it's changing? They don't, it doesn't even yet get to the question of what's causing it, what we should do about it, what the long-term trajectory of it is going to be. But just the data that it's changing, that's something that people are more likely to be right about because it's the kind of thing that just about anybody can check. And I think that's an important set of distinctions to remember when you're trying to evaluate all the whole complex of claims that you sometimes see packaged together. I just want to jump in with a, with a quick recommendation. I know you, you have a number of things, resources you want to share with people, but one that just occurred to me, given the question we, we've uh, fielded, is Ayn Rand's essay on establishing an establishment, which I think is really insightful in sort of identifying the dynamics of what happens to knowledge and knowledge creation, which has a direct bearing to the issue of expertise, uh, when government becomes a funder of research and through grants and scholarships and things like that. And, and it's, it, it's a, a crucial observation she made and it's, it's gotten even, that the problem that she's identifying has only gotten worse over time as, as more and more government investment in science has sort of uh, grown over time. And I think that's definitely a factor in sort of the research we see coming out on controversial issues like climate science, uh, climate change, I should say. Um, why don't we, uh, we should probably wrap up, uh, we're kind of over time. Yeah, uh, so I'll just, uh, I'll just go straight to uh, that list of resources that you mentioned, a few things I think people who wanna learn more about this topic should take a look at. Uh, I started out by talking about how even uh, 
even in an individualist approach to knowledge, it can be completely valid to rely on the, the testimony of experts. And if you want a good objectivist source on this matter, I strongly recommend Dr. Leonard Peikoff's Introduction to Logic course. And here I would specifically point to lecture two, where he talks about informal fallacies. He talks about the fallacy of the appeal to irrelevant authority, and he distinguishes that from appealing to relevant authority. And he gives a set of standards by which to judge whether someone is a reliable expert or not. Uh, this was a really important lecture to me when I was first learning logic. And I think there's a lot that our listeners can get from it. Um, I would also point to another course that's available on ARI campus. Most of these lectures are by Greg Salmiari. I added one to the course. It's called Being Objective. And uh, Greg's taken, I think, a lot of the insights from Ayn Rand's Objectivist Epistemology, as well as contributions uh, that Leonard Peikoff has offered over the years, to thinking about how to be objective across a range of subjects in your thinking. Uh, and in particular, he's got one of the lectures there is called Being an Objective Consumer of Science. A uh, lot in there that's relevant to what we're talking about today. The lecture that I gave was called Being Objective About the News. We didn't talk today too much about, uh, about journalism, but I do think there's an expertise there and you have to be objective in assessing whether or not someone is an expert journalist as well. And I give considerations, again, inspired by objectivist epistemology for making judgments about that. And I'll also point uh, to a few articles that have come out recently in New Ideal. Uh, that relate to some of the things that we've been talking about. Uh, one of the first articles that Elon authored when we first started New Ideal a couple of years ago was Googling does not make you an expert. <laughs> and it's a great uh, little pithy article that summarizes a number of the kinds of perspectives we've been talking about today. So you can uh, look that up at bit.ly slash Googling hyphen expert. I won't read the URLs, but I've given these shortened URLs on the screen for people who want to get to them quickly. Uh, and then I've got a number of articles that I've written related to things we talked about today. Uh, I talked about the important difference between specialized scientific knowledge and on one hand and normative philosophic claims on the other. Uh, that's something that's really important when looking at what the science today about the coronavirus means for what government should be doing. And this is something that I analyzed in my article, the guidance we need to follow the coronavirus science. I also wrote an article called Arguments for Lockdowns Misrepresent Economic Evidence. That's a case where uh, there were a number of articles in popular publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post saying all the economists agree that the government should lock us down. And it's an interesting case where there's a, a false accusation of a, of a consensus that's being made. When you drill down into the data, the data they were actually citing didn't support that there was this consensus of economists. And the other economic data that they gave didn't support the kind of policy conclusions that they were uh, that they were alleging. And last of all, this relates to one of the last things we were talking about, uh, dangerous thinking behind the pandemic partisanship. That relates to the way in which people's views on science are now being packaged together with a certain policy position in a tribalistic way where everybody just assumes, for instance, that uh, if you think that, um, if you think that uh, there are questions to raise about whether hydroxychloroquine has been uh, adequately tested, you must think that then nobody should be able to try it. And that's not the case. That's a set of false alternatives. So I talk about those kinds of things in this article. I'll wrap us up then by saying, if you enjoy 
new ideal. If you like watching these videos, you want to see more of them, please be sure to subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Click that red subscribe button. Also be sure to click the little bell next to it if you want to get notifications every time we go live and every time we post new videos. And finally, uh, thanks again for watching us. If you have ideas for episodes you think we should do in the future, please send us an email to newideal at einrand.org. We read all these emails. We don't always do the topics, but we'll sometimes correspond with you about your ideas. And if you just have questions that you'd like us to answer about some of the things that we've talked about in the webinar today or in previous webinars, this is also a great place to send those questions. So thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, thanks, Ilan. I know you've already uh, dropped off the screen, but uh, we will see you again next week for another episode of New Ideal. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.